Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History as a publicly available podcast. And that's my imitation of like a bingo caller or some shit, I don't know. Uh, I am your ever-effervescent Professor Hamby, here with the ever-studious T.A. Rowan. How are you doing, Rowan? Great. It's Pride Month! You should be fabulous! What's wrong? I am. I mean... You identify, you know, somewhere on the rainbow spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know where, like tan and green or something. I, I don't know what all the colors mean. What? Tan's not on the rainbow? No. Well, that sounds like, you know, sort of colorism. <laughs> Shouldn't the rainbow have all colors? Isn't that what a rainbow's for? I don't know. You're an art student, not me. No, a rainbow's a naturally forming thing. There's no, like, color wheel involved? No. What the hell are you art students doing if you're not fixing rainbows and shit? We don't make rainbows. Oh. Wow, there goes my dreams. Yeah, um, as it should. Anyway, it is Pride Month, mm-hmm. and I hope people are having a fabulous month. And, uh, you know, I, I've really kind of agonized over Pride Month in a way, because mm-hmm. I've really wanted to do this right. Mm-hmm. And it's always kind of awkward because, you know, I, I, I'm a hetero, cis, uh, uh, male and all that. So, you know, Pride Month's not about me, but I want to celebrate it mm-hmm. with people. And as an academic, it's kind of my job to talk about things that I'm not a part of. <laughs> I mean, that's literally like the whole job of anthropology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is to talk about other cultures mm-hmm. and literature to talk about other people's writings. And we'll leave psychology out of it because everybody who goes into that's already fucked in the head and they're really there about themselves. But that's, that's a whole other issue. Um, but, you know, I was looking and so, you know, I knew early on I wanted to do My Brother's Husband because I think it's a powerful work. Mm-hmm. And it approaches family uh, affected by gay family and trying to resolve things in a way that I don't see in literature much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it handled it really deftly, I thought. And I did Gotham, the gayest city in comics, because I wanted to do something that was fun, you know, kind of joyous noise. And I did Gender Queer because I thought it addressed an issue with people on the non-binary gender spectrum in a way that I haven't seen a lot of. And so I was looking around at other stuff, and I was kind of hesitant to jump into things like uh, my alcoholic loneliness, you know, my life as a lesbian, fun home, stuff like that, uh, because they're really pretty dark, and I think they're valuable pieces of literature, but I don't want to give people the impression that Pride Month is all about depressed gay people who hate life or anything like that. Yeah. Um, which is not, you know, the story of Fun Home. Fun Home is actually, in my opinion, a story about somebody overcoming these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no doubt that a lot of the time is spent on pretty dark material. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, okay, well, I know I want to do something about Yuri, which is girl love at the end of the month, and that'll come up next week. And I've done something with gay men, and I've done something with non-binary. And I was looking at other representations, and a lot of stuff I found 
was lesbian ridden by straight men. Now, I, I'm not saying that these were negative or bad representations. In fact, something that was heartening to me is that many of them were very positive representations, where really the fact that they were two female characters wasn't even important. You know, they were not written for a male performative gaze. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know, it just doesn't... And, and I'm glad that... We live in a day and age where these, you know, lesbian characters are able to just be normal. But it made me stop and think about, well, where are the gay male characters, the bi male characters? I'm seeing lots of bi female and lesbian. Um, and it made me think about the fact that I think our culture has reached this strange place where, at least in media... LGBTQ women, femme women, let's be clear, yeah, but... are, are, are not threatening to people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, somehow, and I think maybe adult media has played a part in this, mm -hmm. has made people sort of accepting of the idea of femme LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. But non-femme women and men still face a higher degree of scrutiny and difficulty with acceptance. And I think that is because of the adult work. I mean, it, I do think that it has a certain sort of desensitizing effect on people in that regard. Mm -hmm. So they can, and so instead of getting offended, they can just view, view them as objects. I think that's sometimes true, but I am hardened that in the graphic literature I was thinking of, works like Crowded and Swamp Dogs and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, they're not treated that way in those books. Mm -hmm. So I think that while there's a degree of objectification and presence purely for performative male gaze, in a weird way that's made it possible to have an entryway for them mm -hmm. as more rounded characters. Yeah. But I don't feel like I'm celebrating Pride Month by taking works by straight male authors and highlighting them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an interesting topic, so I wanted to discuss it a little mm. bit. And all of that was a way around to me realizing there was a writer um, that I wanted to talk about who's a little different. Because he does have gay characters in his works, but his works are not generally what one would characterize as LGBTQ works. They, the fact that, that there are gay characters in them is secondary to the plots. It's not a major issue in him. Mm -hmm. But he himself is a bisexual man, mm -hmm. which in some ways is kind of the most invisible uh, uh, position on the LGBTQ spectrum, according to many bi men that I've known. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find that easy to believe. Definitely. And he's had an interesting career path and has been nominated for GLAAD Awards, which is the Glay... Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation? I'm going purely on memory here, folks, so feel free to correct me uh, via feedback on Twitter or anything else you want. My social media accounts are in the show notes. It's at Prof Hamby on Twitter. Uh, and the fellow's name is James Tinian IV. So James Tinian is an interesting fellow. He apparently originally worked in the advertising industry. And was brought into comics, I believe, by uh, Zack Snyder, 
who was well known for doing uh, Batman and sort of relaunching Batman after the new 52 reboot of the DC Universe. And James Tinian came in and wrote some ancillary material, including a series with a spinoff character named Talon. And since then, he's done Justice League and a number of other things for DC. And I'd read some of his superhero stuff, and it was absolutely top-notch. Borderline good for non-superhero readers. Mm. Now, it doesn't quite meet that point. Um, You know, you and I discussed this the other day, but I don't recommend superhero stuff to people very often because it's so inside baseball. You know, there are works like, for example, Alan Moore's Watchmen. We're talking about Alan Moore's From Hell uh, on the Monday podcast. I love Alan Moore. I love Watchmen. But in a lot of ways, the content of Watchmen just reads like, oh, somebody wrote adult superheroes. Unless you know a whole bunch of the history of the Justice League. And then it reads like a whole different work. Because it's very meta. It's about comics. And it's literature. It is true literature. But it is about comics. It's lo- And one of the fascinating things to me is there are people who can sit down and write novels that you must have an encyclopedic knowledge of 18th and 19th century literature for. And people will say, oh, this is amazing literature. It's You need this academic knowledge to understand it, and it's amazing. But if somebody writes something where you have to have an academic knowledge of comics, they go, oh, well, that's trash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seems a little hypocritical to me, right? Maybe that's just me. Mm-hmm. So I had read the superhero work of James Tinian, and it was good, um, but still not really accessible to non-superhero comic book readers. And I had not read the stuff he published with independents, like Boom Studios. And I've spoken before about how Boom, I think, is a place where some really great stuff is being published, uh, that for years, people outside, hardcore, you know, pull-list kind of people with their, you know, every Tuesday pull boxes at their comic book store didn't grok. But James, but Boom has done such a consistent level of quality stuff, including from James Tinian, that that's changing. And so I, I decided when I thought about doing James Tinian the Fourth to go read some of his independent stuff, and I've really been impressed. So we're going to talk about James Tinian the Fourth's independent writing. I'm going to skip over his superhero stuff. I don't think it's... Uh, terribly important for most listeners, but I think these works are highly accessible. And at their best, they remind me of a really good Stephen King. Um, Now, Stephen King is somebody I have mixed feelings about. I am not a huge fan of Stephen King. I actually think some of his books are just not terribly interesting to me. You know, because they're very much based off premises and mood and not a lot of character. At his best, I think Stephen King is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And this were and, and James Tinian's writing reminds me of Stephen King at his best. So we're going to go through some of his works and talk about them conceptually and some of the themes. And I'll be curious about your opinions. Now these are with different artists, and I'm not going to go into the art a lot, but I do want to comment on it briefly because it's an aspect of the work. But I'm focusing more on James Tinian here. Of course. Okay. So I've brought up the first one here. This one was nominated for a 2015 GLAAD Award for Outstanding Comic Book, and it's called uh, Mimetic. What do you think of the cover? 
Describe the cover for everyone. Um, so at the forefront, it's the, like, hypnotizing kind of white and um, black circles within circles you're used to seeing. Right. With some weird edges of blue and red. To kind of give it that LSD almost triple up. Right. It it almost looks like one of those images you're supposed to wear the 3D glasses for. Mm -hmm. And then inside that hypnotic look is a sloth. 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 Yeah. That looks high on it. Yeah, he's smiling and holding up like a thumb slash claw like, hey man. Mm -hmm. With a big smile on his face. Right, and internally this is referred to as Happy Sloth. Uh, when you pick that up, you do not expect to get some sort of horror book out of it. Or... But it is very much a horror book. In fact, it's incredibly nihilistic. You open it up, and you see this guy walking through an alleyway. There's a phone crushed, there's a drink can spilled on the floor, and as the viewpoint comes out, we see buildings on fire, people dead in the alleyway, blood on the walls, and it's obvious civilization has just fallen apart. And it says, four days earlier. And we scoot back to everything in the same viewpoint being fine. People running around, everybody's in good shape, happy. And we find out that basically this kid, this college kid, opens up his computer, and there's a meme going around of the happy sloth, and he just doesn't get it. He doesn't see why people care. And a female friend comes to visit him and tease him that, you know, he's having trouble with his boyfriend, and they're not getting along. And we discover two things about this protagonist. One, he's had a partially collapsed eardrum, so he needs a hearing aid. And two, he's colorblind, so he doesn't see the image as intended. And both of these are important. Quickly, it turns out that this happy sloth is a meme that's running around the whole world. And it's effectively infecting people's brains. We have another image of this older black guy who we find out is retired military. And he's mostly blind, so he can't see the image. Mm -hmm. But this image is soon being printed up and posted everywhere, broadcast all over the news. People are just sitting and watching it in class And it triggers this intense sense of euphoria and desire to keep watching it. Within 12 hours, everybody who's seen it starts losing it. The first people, blood starts erupting out of their eyes and they go manic. Whoa. And they're called screamers. Other people do other things. So, I mean, within a single 12 hours, the world starts collapsing. A civilization falls apart. The president of the United States is one of these. And it just goes on and on and on. And it turns out the image has nothing special about it. It's not filled with some sort of weird viral code. It's just a JPEG. But somebody has figured out the precision of neural linguistic engineering in such a way that the visual patterns alter our brains. And you'd think to yourself, okay, well... This is when the resistance forms. The good guys are going to pull together and fight this. Well, our protagonist's boyfriend shows up. And they head out together. And the retired military guy gathers up a scientist who has theorized about this kind of danger in the past. And they gather up some more military people. 
and they head off to find the origin of it. And they find this guy who says that angels told him how to do it. Oh, it's never good when the answer is angels. Right. Now, along the way, the boy makes up with his boyfriend. Uh, We have some scenes of them with a lot of implied nudity, you know, very convenient covering of bits. They kiss, and the boyfriend saw the image and decides rather than go mad and potentially be a danger to his boyfriend to step off the ledge of a high-rise and plunge himself to his death. Way to be dramatic about it! Don't worry, this is a happy feel-good moment compared to the rest. Oh, joy. Right. I mean, this is nihilistic. You know, and everything fails. I mean, the good guys go to confront the, the creator of the danger. He says angels taught him how to do it. He's mad. He dies. There's no cure to be found. And soon people are pushing their flesh together to build giant towers made out of their naked bodies to reach to the sky. Joy. And even our protagonist, eventually, even though he can't be affected visually, (coughs) we find out that the meme, the viral meme, is evolving into a sound for people and affecting them that way. Now, he's partially deaf, so he's still not affected. But he is so distraught at watching the world end and everything collapse that he eventually walks into the masses of people and sacrifices himself anyway, just unable to bear being alone at the end of the world. And these towers of people's flesh literally fuse together, their eyes looking to the sky and bleeding out of the mass, are there when the angels show up. These fucked-up sci-fi Cthulian what-the-fucks. Ah, shit, he wasn't lying. And that's it. That's the end. That's depressing. So, you know, it's a feel-good, happy-go-lucky kind of comic. Uh Uh-huh. Recommend to all kids under 10. Right, exactly. (laughs) You know, because nightmares build character. Uh Uh-huh. Right, exactly. Um, For for those of you who are... uh, what we call sarcasm impaired. That was not serious. Please do not give this to children under 10. Um, I, I'm not sure you should give this to children under 100. Holy shit. But as, as someone who kind of enjoys cosmic horror and nihilistic horror, um, I kind of loved it. Yeah, that, that was actually really a really interesting concept. Right. Uh, now, that was a standalone work. I think it was published as four issues and combined into a graphic collection. It's called Mnemic. And it's easy to recognize from that happy sloth cover. Mm-hmm. The next one I'm going to talk about has a lot of the same themes. We see these themes erupt from James Tinian. And we'll see another uh, gay character here, a uh, gay female character in this case, lesbian. And Tinian has said he does not go out of his way to write gay characters. He just writes characters, and he has gay friends, he's bisexual himself, and so these are the kinds of people he writes about, the same kinds of people that he knows in his world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best way for a writer to write, is organically. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is not attempting to make a statement about including LGBTQ characters. They're just people. Yeah. So, and one of the things I found interesting in reading a couple of interviews he did 
was that he said that he made an effort to come out as bisexual very publicly Mm -hmm. because he found himself going back into a closet. Mm. He said he'd never really been in the closet as an adult. He'd been out um, and comfortable as a bisexual man. But that when he got into the comic book industry, which has a lot of uh, gatekeeping, comics, gator, you know, people who, I hate to say it, look a lot like me. You know, middle-aged, white, cis, hetero guys with beards. Except they apparently are terrified of people being different than them, while I love it. Uh, I want all the diversity in the world possible because I want to read all their stories. I'm a selfish bastard. Mm -hmm. Um, If I only had stories to read about people like me, that'd be boring as shit. Mm -hmm. I want to read all the stuff. But anyway, this this community does exist, and there are loud voices like this. And he said that for a long time he was dating a woman, and he found it easy to kind of passively go back into the closet because he just didn't have to say anything for people to assume he was straight. Mm-hmm. And he felt like he kind of had to come out uh, uh, to... And he had been out in his life, all his life. He'd never really been in the closet as an adult. And he found himself for the first time making effort to come out because he didn't want to lie by silence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. That's really sweet. So this next work is called Cognetic. And we're going to see a lot of the same themes we did in Mimetic. And Cognetic, the opening... I love the opening here. I want to know your opinion of this. In the Gulf of Mexico, these fishermen catch a dolphin. They're talking about how dumb dolphins are. One of them says, no, they're actually smart. They have a debate. And then they both drop dead and the dolphin jumps back in the water. As the dolphin should. Right. But why do they drop dead? Now we jump from the Gulf of Mexico to a bus heading to from Jersey City, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Now this old guy <coughs> is sitting on the bus, and he goes, "It's so simple. The answer is right inside of you. I spent the last few hundred years trying that whole not talking shtick. Didn't see the point of it. Really, I've got lots of really good ideas. You should listen. I'm old, you know. I swear, I don't care. Please stop talking to me." So there's this younger black guy, and his text is in black. Most people's dialogue is in black, but this guy's dialogue is in blue, the old white guy, the black guy. I don't care that you're old. I don't care that you're crazy. I don't care that you've decided to talk to me for some unfathomable reason. I have this book. I'm going to read this book. Ha! You think you're making a decision right now? You think you're some kind of individual? You are all so precious. I'll give you that. I've always found it cute. But you know what? There are about 100 trillion microorganisms inside your body right now. And he goes on and on about this. Mm-hmm. And they keep having this dialogue until eventually the old man grabs his, jack- his uh, shoulder through his jacket. And then they start talking in unison, picking up each other's sentences in the... Black guy's dialogue is in blue now also. So now we jump to a woman uh, who's getting up in a hotel room. And she's communicating by text messages with her boss and with her wife. And she's on a work trip. Her wife is sending her a picture of herself and the kid. And we find out that basically she's the assistant to the director of the FBI And she could be the head of the FBI, but she doesn't want that publicness or scrutiny. Mm -hmm. 
Meanwhile, the old man dies, and the younger black man walks around, recruiting more people into speaking in blue and being part of what's clearly kind of like a hive mind Uh thing. Which brings new highlight to what the old man was saying about being an individual not being true, right? Uh Uh-huh. So they kind of keep going through things. And the woman just keeps texting. She's communicating purely by text with everybody. (laughs) Including her boss, telling him who people are there are walking up, what he needs to do. All these things. Meanwhile, the black guy heads to the Empire State Building and is recruiting everybody at the Empire State Building into this hive mind and starts sending them flying off to their deaths, ten at a time. Holy shit. And people go in to stop it, and they're recruited also. This is getting bad. Mm-hmm. So eventually, she push the the woman, who's the assistant to the director pushes her way in and gets her way to the top of the Empire State Building. Still only communicating by text message. She finds a throne built out of human bodies. Literally hundreds of people on their knees laying over each each other, making a giant throne for some white guy that's the current focus of this hive mind. And he says in his blue text, hello, little one. And for the first time, she speaks out loud and her text is in red. It's been a long time, brother. You're looking at me. And we find out that in prehistoric times, back in caveman times, some alien ship landed. Hmm. And this tribe of people basically all got their heads zapped with information and knowledge. A group of six of them. And each of them became identified by a color. Mm -hmm. And then they ate of this creature's flesh and they became these disembodied minds that could jump bodies and collectively control. And at times in history, have literally controlled all of humanity. Wow. And many of them are gone. Basically, you know, despaired and committed suicide And there's only a few left, including Red and Blue here. Mm. And Red has fought to protect humanity and allow them to keep their individuality. Mm -hmm. While Blue wants to unify all of humanity under his mind. Hmm. Yep. Uh, Also, we discover they can use animals when the woman is going to die and she transfers into a bird to spread herself to cops down below. Hmm. Oh, so she can just snatch new bodies. Yep. As he can. Hmm. They have the same powers. Meanwhile, remember those human towers in Manemic? Mm-hmm. Well, here in Cognetic, he's doing the same thing except building giant tentacle towers out of people's bodies. Oh, joy! So much... Yeah, there's a definite body horror theme in here. I think somebody watched some Hellraiser movies when they were a kid, is all I'm saying. Uh Uh-huh. Which is actually pretty horrific, so, you know, I'm cool with this. Yeah. So, she decides to try to solve things by cutting down the bodies with machine guns from helicopters, and then uses the connection with the head of the FBI to get contact with the president, and she takes over control of the United States government. 
Holy shit. And authorizes a nuclear strike to take out New York City to stop her brother. Because she remembers last time that he went wild and took over all of humanity. Wasn't good? Nope. And, but he anticipated this and spread out. Meanwhile, remember that dolphin? Mm -hmm. It has yellow eyes. It swims up to a shore and jumps into the body of a child. It turns out that the yellow Mm -hmm. member of the tribe has spent the last few thousand years living with creatures in the ocean and had abandoned humanity. Basically decided humans weren't worth it. Right. Which, fair. To play ocean god. So, in the end, remember that blue body constructs of the tentacle towers? Uh He builds a giant, like, kaiju blue body flesh creature where the sister builds a red one, and now suddenly we have this Godzilla-like fight between red and blue masses of human bodies fused together. You know, this went from 10 to 100 really quick. It did, didn't it? And it's batshit crazy. Uh-huh. And it's kind of brilliant for that. Mm-hmm. And then the bomb gets dropped, and you see the bodies separating, and everyone dies, and red is like, all right, it's dealt with. But he wasn't that dumb. He was already spread out wide before that. Oh, and we can see London and Paris back Mm -hmm. there. And there's a subplot in here I'm not going to spoil. But it it ties directly into the themes of those aliens visiting a monemic. That there's this other presence out there in the universe. And it's not necessarily friendly. And not only is this like Stephen King on his better days... But it's some of the better cosmic horror that I've ever read. Mm. Um, Yes, there are angels, but that doesn't mean that they're good for humanity. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are alien civilizations, but they they aren't necessarily looking for us to evolve into a better kind of people before they come visit. Mm -hmm. Um, Really good stuff. And if you like horror, it's good stuff. Now, the next two series I'm going to talk about briefly, uh, I've read everything that's currently out in collected versions of Something is Killing the Children, but I'm only only going to talk about the first one. And I've not read all of the second one, but I'm currently in the process of it. Now, the first one I'm going to talk about is Something is Killing the Children, which there are four collected volumes of and some individual issues out of. Sorry, I have hiccups. Uh, It was originally planned as, I think, about 12 or 16 issues to be collected in three volumes, and it was popular enough that it's ongoing, and there's now another spinoff series out, kind of exploring some of the mythology of the world. Mmm, that's cool. But it introduces uh, a main character named Erica Slaughter. Ooh. And basically, as the story opens, this kid is telling uh, horror stories. The kind of stuff you might hear on, like, you know, a subreddit dedicated to tell spooky stories, tell no sleep stories. And, you know, he swears there's this monster out in the ravine. And, of course, you know, he's just telling stories to scare them because apparently he's good at it. But there's not supposed to be anything out there. And then we see him in a police interrogation room. And he's like... I swear, I just made it up. The monster wasn't real. 
And the cop's like, well, then what killed all those kids? Basically, his three friends got killed in that ravine, and he didn't. Which, of course, is very suspicious. And then we see this little girl who's been hurt on a red wagon. Looks like she may be missing a hand, and her eye is bandaged up. And then this blonde with a big creepy green eye and a big mask bandana around her face walks out of the woods carrying giant bloody knives. Oh, joy. And walks towards the girl. This says two weeks later. She drops the knives and almost collapses in front of the girl. Gets a bottle of water out of her bag. Drinks it. And basically the girl says, is it over? And the woman says, yeah, you should be safe now. Mm. Now, I want to ask you, does that bandana look familiar? It does. I just don't know where. I had to check the times on publication. Because I saw it. And my mind immediately went to a collie in KDA. Mm, yeah. I, yeah. For, I forget the single they did. What was that first KDA single? Pop Stars. Pop Stars, yes. For those who don't know, um, Riot Games, who make the game League of Legends, had some success with doing a heavy metal act with some of their characters. And they released a video and a couple of recorded songs using actual heavy metal musicians. Uh, they decided in, I, th- oh God, I want to say it was 2015 or 16, somewhere yeah, around there. 2015, 16, around the rise of K-pop. Right. They had a, a world championship for League of Legends, and they decided to do something with K-pop. And so they created a fictional four-person group called KDA, which, stand, which is an acronym in the game for Kills, Deaths, Assists, stats you have during League of Legends. And combined some of the popular female characters mm-hmm. using two Western musicians and two Korean ones. One of whom is a rapper for a group called G-Idol, uh, which I think is disbanded now. No, G-Idol They're still gone. around? Mm-hmm. Okay, they had a member leave, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, the G-Idol member, or I think they might both be from G-Idol, the, the one who played the rapper... Uh, plays the sort of anti-hero, villainous Akali in the group, um, who wears a bandana over her face in the music video uh, with this sort of horrific mask. Yeah, with like, the, with like the teeth. Right. And this was published several years after that. So I do wonder if the artist uh, uh, saw pop stars and was inspired by that. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be either. It was very popular. Yeah, it went viral. Oh, yeah. It was a good pop song. Mm. So the story basically revolves around the idea that there are these classes of monsters that erupt from people's fears and take place in the real world. And it is a fairly traditional monster hunting story. If you have seen things like the TV show Supernatural, the basic premise is not going to surprise you. These individuals operating largely alone wander the country to fight evil and stop the things that go bump in the night from killing people, even though they're distrusted and often find themselves on the wrong side of the law. Uh, However, Tinian does some interesting twists in here, such as making them part of an order called the Order of St. George. Uh, He does not explain this explicitly, but of course those with a bit of cultural background will know St. George as the uh, British mythological figure that killed a dragon. 
or, mm -hmm. you know, creature of evil. And it turns out they're complete pricks. Mm. And at least according to Erica, they're more concerned with being pompous and keeping their secrets than they are really protecting people. Joy. And we do, in fact, see some evidence for that. However, we also see evidence that when she disobeys their rules, even more people die than would have either way. Otherwise. Joy. So, and, and people die. They die gruesomely. I mean, in this one part, the kid that we met at the beginning is holding the hand of his friend who has been, had the bottom part of his body severed at the torso and his guts are dragging across the ground. Oh, that, that's horrific to and see. people die. Die horribly in this. A lot of them. And their age doesn't matter. They're, nobody is safe. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not as completely nihilistic as monemic or cognetic, but it's still really dark. Still not feel good. Yep. And these creatures, adults can't see. Oh, joy. Children can see them and adults with access to a special uh, substance can. Mm. That's it. So, it, it's a pretty bizarre book. It's dark. Uh, it's out in four collected volumes right now, as well as individual issues, which I'm sure will be collected. Uh, I, I think for fans of horror, you know, if you're a fan of the TV show Supernatural, and you don't mind it getting substantially darker than that, uh, this is a good read. Mm. Now, the last one was originally intended as a fairly short run, and it was so successful right off the bat, bat that it was expanded to, I think, like 36 issues. Mm. And the company went ahead and uh, committed to the whole run. It's now out in seven collected uh, graphic novel volumes. And it's called The Woods. Now, it's actually, I think, the least dark of all of these so far that we've talked about. Joy. Not that that's a high bar, right? Mm -hmm. But basically, these... Kids are at a preparatory high school in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. And I know what you're saying. They're in Milwaukee. How can things get worse for them? Um, and basically, the school is teleported to another planet somewhere. Uh, you know, people with eyes and some minimal knowledge of astro astronomy are able to figure out they're on a moon around a gas giant. And there are no Earth-like moons around gas giants in our solar system. Yeah. So while some of the uh, uh, people, including the principal, are like, okay, we just need to settle down and be chill and we'll be rescued. And of course, other people are looking at him going, who the fuck is going to rescue us? Well, he's a principal. He's not pay paid to think. Yeah. I mean, they're like, human civilization has not figured out how to travel people to Jupiter yet, much less go collect our whole high school of us from a whole other solar system. Yeah, let's keep they, let's keep in mind going to the moon is a hassle for us still. Right. Uh <laughs> and meanwhile, they're like, we have limited food, no running water, no electricity, we we need toilets, we need to dig latrines. And he's like, no, we just need to all be safe. And then creatures start flying through the windows to eat people. Very safe. Right. So, and so it's not the kids who become Lord of the Flies here. It's actually the teachers who start recruiting the kids to act like it's Lord of the Flies. 
which actually seems fairly realistic to me in a lot oh, of ways. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, of course, it's a gym teacher. Gym teachers are always the creepiest You know, things. look, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I am sure there are some wonderful people out there who are gym teachers. Mm-hmm. I've not met them. And the, you don't seem to be the majority. You mean minority? My, no, majority. They don't seem to be the majority. Oh, the, the non-creepy ones? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I, gym teachers, in my personal experience, are like, they woke up one day and said, I am the living stereotype of a gym teacher, so I might as well become a gym teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, from the butch, angry lesbian who hates men and leers at the girls in the girls' shower, yes, I knew that gym teacher in school, and she creeped the girls out, <sighs> to the pot-bellied football coach who... You know, leered at the cheerleaders <laughs> and, and seemed to have the job because nobody else wanted to hire somebody who, you know, wore a porn stash unironically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and this, so, I mean, I, I found this easy to believe characterizing gym teachers like oh, this. Oh, yeah. So they get teleported to this other world. Things are obviously very dangerous. And their only evidence of anything is this weird alien artifact that seems to point into the woods. They're teleported on the edge of a lake between the lake and the woods. So one of the characters basically says that the alien artifact talked to him and said they need to go into the woods. So a group of them break away from the fuckery going on inside Mm -hmm. and head into the woods where they find a pyramid... A Mayan pyramid with writing on the walls with evidence from a number of different human cultures over centuries. And that's pretty much where I'm at at the end of the first volume. Now, I've skipped a lot of plot because I don't want to give that away for people. But obviously, we have a few things different here. We don't have quite the overwhelming sense of nihilism. Mm -hmm. Although it may be there's nothing they can do. uh, And the fact that, you know, there are these signs from these other civilizations with no evidence around, is not reassuring. It implies others were here and unable to get out. Right. Uh, Although they don't know what happened to them. And the idea that people from Earth are going to be able to come find them is just absurd. So their lives are in their own hands now. Unless somebody gets bored with them and sends them back, which is something the principal brings up. And while that would be nice if it happened, I wouldn't bet on it. Alien creatures don't tend to kidnap a high school than to just put them back. Right. And they say, well, maybe there's an accident. They'll put us back. Yeah, right. How, how do you accidentally kidnap a whole people and building? And we don't see immediate evidence of those larger ideas and cognitive and dynamic. Uh, th- this is a more... Uh, personal scale story of how individuals respond to horror. Mm-hmm. Now, we had some of that in Cognetic and Mnemic, but in Mnemic, it just overwhelmed everything, the, the grand scale horror. In Cognetic, we saw th- primarily through the viewpoint of one of these godlike participants. Mm-hmm. So, and something is killing the children. Uh, one of the things that I really have enjoyed in it is people acted like people. You know, there were whole scenes where, for example, the sheriff sat around just going, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And he was just paralyzed and overwhelmed 
with the gravity and magnitude of what was happening and didn't know how to respond to it. Mm -hmm. That feels very human to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, And we get a lot of that more personal touch here with the woods also. So, I mean, what do you think seeing these? I mean, all of these have had LGBTQ characters, but I haven't had to go into depth on that to talk about the stories. They're just fully formed and realized characters in the stories. Which I've always liked. I kind of feel like if sexuality or romance or whatever doesn't matter to the story, I don't feel like the fact that a character is gay should be a big deal. Right. And there are romantic elements. I mean, we had a love scene in Mm -hmm. Cognetic between two men, um, but it wasn't played for shock. It was sweet and bittersweet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the story moved on just as it would have if they had been a male and female character. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best way to do representation is to just get people used to these things and not treat it as something to draw attention to. Because they're they're people in stories. Mm -hmm. Everyone's humans no matter what. And I think this is good writing. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm very impressed. I'll be honest. A lot of times when writers I know as superhero writers go into independent stuff, I... Well, let's just say that just because you're capable of writing Captain America doesn't mean you can write a completely original story. Mm-hmm. But I'd actually be curious to read all three of these. Yes, all four of them. Mm-hmm. Four, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think these are really good. I think these are way better than his work for DC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really liked his run on Justice League, mm. but I think this is far, far better and far more interesting, frankly. So that's where we are. If you want to celebrate Pride Month in part by reading an LGBTQ author with works that have some LGBTQ characters, strongly recommend James Tinian for quick standalone reads, Cognetic and Menemic. If you want something with that's still ongoing and has more content uh, and you like horror, uh, especially monster-killing horror. Something is Killing the Children is good. If you want something that's a seven-volume read and meteor, then The Woods is excellent. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Anything else you wanted to add to it? No, that's really all I have to say. Okay. Well, when we're back uh, next Thursday... We are going to be talking about some Yuri manga from a particular author. And I'm looking forward to that because I love Yuri as a genre. Me too. And until then, keep reading lesbian manga. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye.